0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. We are continuing in our series through this letter from Paul to the church in Rome, and this is the section where most preachers have just lumped it all together, and I think it's because they don't want to read all the weird names in what I'm about to read. And I was wrestling with that, and then I remembered, I live in Utah, where a lot of people have a lot of weird names. So if this were written here... Could go a lot of ways. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read uh, Romans 16 verses three through sixteen. It's on page one thousand nine. If you want to pull one of those uh, pew Bibles, a church Bible, out, I'm going to probably get the names wrong, and I'm going to be okay with that. We're just going to we're just going to roll with it. So let's um, let's read God's word together, shall we? Romans chapter sixteen, starting in verse three. Give my greetings to Prisca. And Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend, Empanidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, that's an easy one, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Juni, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostle, apostles, Excuse me, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet uh, Ampelitus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend uh, Stachi something. Greet <laughs> Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Uh, Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. Greet uh, Asris, that one. Uh, Let me try this. I worked through this all week, and still they were different every time. Uh, a syncretus, and Phlegon and Hermes and Petrobus and Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them, greet Philologius and Julia, Nurusus, Nurus, excuse me, and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, as we look at a list that seems just simply personal to Paul, that, that we wonder, how, how is it that this is even in our canon? What can, we, what can we gain from understanding your word? How are you speaking this out as breathed scripture to us? Lord, help us to see this and understand what it is to be your people. God, I would just ask that you would, you would help me to communicate what you have made known through your word well. And God, help us to hear it. And above all, Lord, help us to live it. Lord, as I have not supplied copious application suggestions in this sermon, I'm asking that throughout the whole sermon, the Holy Spirit would whisper in our ears, move us and compel us to know what it is that you would have us to do from a text such as this one. I thank you, Lord, for this church and for our opportunity to gather and to sit under the authority of your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's a popular notion in uh, the church growth movement, in a lot of the church growth folks, the, church, uh, the folks that are trying to help churches to be bigger and, and grow. Uh, it's a similar notion in the church planting teams and the people there. And there's just this, this incredible emphasis over the last 20, 30, maybe 40 years on creating community. And why not? That makes really good sense. We need to create community, don't we? That's the thought here. After all, one in four Americans today confesses to feeling lonely. That was a recent survey that just came out. And the idea that church people and churches have is if we can meet that need, if we can help create community, then maybe people will come and be a part of the community. And then maybe while they're here, they'll hear the gospel. And that will be great, right? And so we highly value the idea of creating community. This sort of community that would draw people here. then the measure of success when we do that is how people feel connected and how much stuff they're doing and what they're getting plugged into. We see this sort of thing in slogans, and I'm not trying to be hard on people, but I want us to be honest. Slogans like, in churches, belong before you believe. Belong to the community we created before you believe Jesus. That's a very popular slogan. Another one you hear often, and it's not a necessarily a bad thing, but one you hear often is there's a place here for you. Okay, we're going to make you the central point of our community, and the thing that's missing is, is you. We need you here. Okay, It all sounds fine and good. This sounds nice. We like this. It kind of puts us in the middle of things. We like to be in the middle of things. And so those who are really longing for community, which I am, we, want, we like this kind of stuff. It feels good. It's where we it's where we connect with people. But I think that it is an unbiblical approach to community that actually causes us to miss the more robust gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at best, it's just fleeting community. It's here for a time and gone. At worst, it promotes sort of a false therapeutic people-centered gospel that might Deceptively comfort people as they're they're journeying towards a separation from God for eternity. If we don't get this right, there's grave consequences. Now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you're lonely, there's no hope for you. Okay, I'm not saying that you know there's no place for you at this church. I'm not saying any of those things. Okay, I'm just saying that the foundation for this pseudo-community is is questionable. And there's a big difference between sort of a fake mirror and look-like-the-world community and the community of authentic believers brought about because of the redemptive power and work of Jesus Christ. I think most of us want meaningful, real, genuine community and friendships with people. I mean, if you don't, I kind of question you as a person. Like, we want to be around and connected with other human beings. And there's numerous opportunities for that in our communities today. Okay? The the pandemic is over, um, except for the military maps I just learned this morning. They're still doing whatever that stuff is. But you can find many opportunities to go to a club, to join a gym, to get involved with hobbies... There are numerous ways in which you can connect with other people in community, and that's fine, but those are not the same kind of community that the gospel offers to God's people, because when God creates a people for himself, he creates real community, meaningful community. Right? We, we get to see the byproduct of godly community in the text that we just read all these names that are hard to pronounce, all these connections, all these amazing things. This is the fruit here in Romans 16, 3 through 16 of the doctrine of adoption. And it's, the, it's the, the outpouring of biblical fellowship. That's what we're seeing here, and that's what I want us to explore today. Because I think somewhere down deep in most of us, we're longing for this sort of thing. We, we want it. It feels... Lacking in ways, I feel that, and maybe you feel that, I want this. So let's take a look. In Romans 16, verses 3 through 16, Paul asks the original recipients of his letter specifically to greet these various individuals that are in and around this church, the people that Paul knows. He's saying, hey, make sure to say hi to this person and that person and this person and that person, okay? And we're assuming that when they got the letter, they did that. Okay? But that's all long gone. Right, That's gone. But what's worth noting here is that Paul lists 28 specific individuals. 28 people, plus an entire house church, plus two more unique households, plus two different groups of people in whatever capacity they were gathering with some of the people he named. And let's not forget that he already mentioned Phoebe. This is a growing group just in this letter. Then, as we're going to see in the coming weeks or next week, Romans 16, 21 through 23, there are eight more people who are where Paul's writing who want to say hi to the people in Rome. Like, hey, make make sure to say hi to these people. So say hi to those people for me. These people also say hi. There's all this different connection. Plus, we want to remember that Paul is part of this community as well. So when you count it up, excluding those just nebulous big groups... We have a bare minimum of 38 specifically named people within Paul's community in this particular section of the letter to the Romans. I I didn't even have the time this week to go through all the people that Paul would have been connected if we went through all of his letters. But that's just in this circumstance, right? That's amazing. Some of these people were were Paul's co-laborers in ministry. They worked with him in this. Some were in prison with him. That's a way to make some friends. Or so I've been told. There's the first convert in Asia among Paul's community, right? Uh, Some of these people were leaders in a house church, maybe the pastor in the house church. There's the guy who helped Paul write the letter included in here. There's people who worked hard. There's people that the apostles knew and and, and committed to, hey, we, we know that person. There's a church accountant in here, a treasurer. These are all Paul's friends. This was Paul's community. Somehow Paul, somehow, had, had personally crossed paths with all of these people and was knit together with them, was united with them. Yeah, and this is just a very, very small glimpse of what biblical community looks like. Right? Very small. It doesn't really say what they're doing, it just kind of says who they are. What was the cause of these connections? What was the causal thing? What was the seed to these relationships? Okay, it was not that they all joined a softball league and then over the course of joining the league they all became a community. That's not what we see here. It was not that they were all lacking community and went, I'm feeling kind of lonely. I think I'm gonna go check out the local church here in Rome and see what kind of community it offers and see what stuff it has. Okay, I mean, people do that, but that's not what created this. These people were all sinners. They were all saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. They were believers. Okay, and the reason that they knew each other and the reason that they became knit together as friends and they wanted to greet one another is Jesus. Jesus is the causal agent. Okay, this is the connection that they were all redeemed by Jesus Christ. And because of that, they loved one another. It's the chief mark of this particular community in this text that they had love for one another because they were first loved by Christ and because they loved Christ together. That was the connecting tissue. God saved them, and then out of his saved people, he created this community. All of these people, all of them listed here, especially Paul, but definitely all of them, they were condemned under the justice of God. They were condemned... People, they were all under a death sentence that we read about in Romans three twenty three and six twenty three. But God sent His only Son Jesus Christ to live this perfect life in their place, and then die in their place to take on the punishment that they deserved. If that were the end of the story, I mean, that would be something. But they wouldn't be a community. They they wouldn't be connected. It, It would just be a fact out there, and that'd be that. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death, which is fantastic. And then he promised that all who follow him will also mirror that same resurrection. We'll all be resurrected one day. We will all live in that perfect state that he now lives in. Then he descended to sit at the right hand of the Father, but before he did that, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people, to tie us together in this common bond of this redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And he said this Spirit will empower you and equip you to be a people, to be the church, to be my representatives, to be my ambassadors, to represent me together in this thing he calls the church. by, By saving and redeeming these people, God has created this special and unique group of people marked by a new heart of flesh Right, marked by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, and then transformed by Jesus, put on task to live for His purposes as His witnesses to the good pleasure of God and to our joy. That's what God has created. Encouraging God's people, Peter, a member of this church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, writing Scripture for us in 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one, he's talking about Jesus, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, that's the the promise sort of being worked out and fulfilled that was made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. God told Abraham that he would be our God, and we... Would be his people. Right? And then in Exodus 19, 5 through 6, we learn that, that God's people would be priests to the whole world. Right? They would become this holy nation. They'd be a people for God's own possession. They'd be God's chosen people. And then we find out in John 1:12 that all who reject Jesus would not be among those people, but all who receive Jesus would be given the right to become children of God, not by physical birth. Not by just being born, not by the will, but of the power of God. And then John 3, 3 is talking to uh, this, this religious leader who's confused about being born again. And Jesus calls being born again the mechanism by which this stuff is happening. He goes on to say that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That is, if they believe in the name of the only Son of God, they will be saved and not condemned from our sins, and something will radically change in them. Then you fast forward a little more to Romans 9 and 10. We went through this in this book. Paul teaches us that God's chosen people have to believe in Jesus. They have to, that's, that's the, you can't be among God's people and not believe in Jesus. So some who thought they were God's chosen people, their chosen race, rejected Jesus, and then it says they were cut off. He uses an illustration of this, this plant, and the branches, these unbelieving, Jesus-rejecting branches were cut off. But here's what's interesting. Anyone who accepts Jesus can be, in this illustration, grafted in to become this, this picture, if they repent and believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But Paul says something amazing in this illustration. He says, yes, those fruitless, unbelieving branches, the Jesus-rejecting branches that were cut off can also be grafted back in which is pretty amazing. So when Peter says here, we are a chosen race, we're a chosen race, we're a holy nation, he's talking about those who are bought by the sacrificed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, who believe in Jesus, who profess that Jesus is Lord, who repent and follow Jesus. It's to those who are given the right to become children of God. Okay, that's the kind of community that God creates and makes available to us. That's what he's, he's doing by his power. All right, so as we're thinking about this Romans verse we just read, 16.3-16, I think we, we might see some of this in there. We, we can kind of recognize it. Because it first requires that we're surrendered to Jesus before we're going to have this authentic thing. Do you think these people went to prison for no reason? Paul went to prison for the name of Christ. Do you think these people were laboring hard, rejecting Jesus? No, they're serving Jesus. They're leading in churches. They're working as his church. These people were redeemed by Jesus and loved Jesus and therefore the outpouring of their love for Jesus became connectivity among God's people. That's what this community is that we see. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus in this way? You're not gonna have the community you're longing for without Jesus. So it starts there. I just wanna encourage you and challenge you. Are you are you? Submitted to that first as you're longing for this community. Students of the Bible have studied the Bible, and, and when they, they come together, they take certain things from places in the Bible, and they bring them together. This is the general teaching of the Bible, and to make it a little bit easier to get our head around, to make it a little bit concise, they take a whole collection of these things in one place, and they call that a doctrine. This doctrine has a given name. It's called the doctrine of adoption, what I'm talking about here. That's sort of the formal name. And the outworking of the doctrine of adoption, this creating of a people like this, is called fellowship. That's the word that gets used. So I want to turn our attention to that for a minute. So we're going to move a little bit away from this text just for a moment so we can kind of see maybe what's happening here. I want to start with a quote from a Puritan named John Owen. Fascinating guy. If you've never encountered John Owen, I would encourage maybe you pick up some of his stuff and read it. He says this, Adoption... Is the authoritative translation a believer by Jesus Christ from the family of the world and Satan into the family of God with his investiture, investiture in all the privileges and advantages of that family? And you said, You just said I should read that guy. What did he even say in that sentence? I thought I had typos in their glory. It's old timey writing. Here's what it means. Wayne Grudem has summarized what he's saying in a way I think we can get our head around. He says, adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. <laughs> They're saying the same thing, right? <laughs> They're saying the same thing. God goes from, or a person goes from this place that's not in God's family through the power of God into God's family. Now, biblically, you might remember John 1, 12 through 13. I hinted at it a little bit earlier. It says, to all who received Jesus, he gave them, God gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We weren't children of God. Then, through Jesus Christ and the work that he did, we've been able to be adopted and become children of God. Well, what were we before? Ephesians two three says we were Children of wrath. Jesus said to some Jews who were rejecting him, and a lot of Jews in the Gospels rejected Jesus, and he's talking to a group of them, and they're upset, and they say, we have Abraham as our father, and he says, if God were your father, you would love me, because I came from God, and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Here's Jesus' answer to that question because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. You can read more about that in John 8, verses 42 through 44. They weren't children of God. They were children of the devil, children of wrath. But adoption is that through Jesus Christ, we can be adopted into God's family. This is where the world really misses it. When we, when we chant the common mantra, the slogan, we're all children of God. And I think the idea behind that is to say we all have equal value, and that's great, but it's stating something that's theologically not true. We're all children of God. No. Nope. Not a. It's only through our communion with Jesus Christ by surrendering our lives to him through the shed blood that he shed on the cross for us on our behalf that he would beckon us that we can become children of God, that we can enter God's family. That's the doctrine of adoption. That's the doctrine of adoption. I like how Millard Erickson put it. It's another theologian. He kind of helps with this. He wrote this. It's kind of long, but I'm going to read it. Adoption involves the father's goodwill. It is one thing for us to be pardoned for the penalty incurred by the wrongdoing. It's been paid. That, however, may simply mean that we will not be punished in the future. It does not necessarily guarantee goodwill. If a criminal's debt to society has been paid, society will not necessarily thereafter look favorably or charitably upon him or her. There may instead be suspicion, distrust, even animosity. With the Father, however... There are the love and goodwill that we so much need and desire. He is ours. We are His. And He, through adoption, extends to all the benefits of His measureless love that can be bestowed. A person pays debt to society, but they're still not loved. Adoption says God not only has paid the debt, but bestows love upon us in this way. We don't live in that kind of a history. Okay, we're not just children of God, apart from a family. That's not what this is. We think in those terms, but it's not right. The Bible makes it clear that God has a family. God's family are God's redeemed people. Okay, So those who are in God's family, His children, been adopted into His family, live by a certain ethic. Okay, and There's a certain way we function. There's a certain way that we should think. There's certain traditions and practices and experiences that should bring us joy, that should serve the family well. <clears throat> that should cause us to love, to gather together because we're all adopted brothers and sisters in God's family. Okay, it's, it's God's culture. We now live in this culture. My son, he gave me permission to share this, Asher, he's adopted. His race is Navajo. Okay? Two years ago or so, I asked him, hey, do you want to explore Your culture. Hey, would you like to maybe put that into your homeschool regime? Should we take a trip down to the Navajo Nation? Should we go to a powwow? Should we explore Navajo history? You know what he did? He rebuked me. (laughs) I mean, to my face. He blasted me. He said, culture is the traditions. He had learned this in school. Culture is the traditions, the preferences, the language, and the shared history of a people. And because I am adopted, I'm in my culture, and you are my people. Or else I wasn't really adopted. He said that. Can you believe that? I went, Whoa. He's right. <laughs> when we're adopted by God, we don't just get salvation, we get the whole package. Okay? We experience and taste the wonderful blessings of adoption into God's family through this family gathering, through gathering with the saints through the things that we're doing together. Okay, the, the church gathering is just a hint of this adopted family as we anticipate the great day when we get to be with all the family at the great feast with the Lord. we just get to sample that a little bit now. You know, all, all of these friends that Paul wanted the church to greet, they were part of Paul's community. But get this, they're part of our community too. We will sit with them at the great feast too with Paul, with because we're all in this family, we all share this culture, we all share this connectivity. These aren't Paul's people, these are our people. One day they'll be our friends as we worship and, and love the Lord together in eternity. That is kingdom culture. That's the big picture of what Christianity really is. Not just this little church over there and that little church over there, but kingdom culture in Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of adoption. That's amazing, isn't it? I'm always shocked when I hear people say, I don't study the doctrines of the church. I just love Jesus. I'm like, wait a second. I have to wonder if you know anything about Jesus at all. We study these doctrines, these collections of biblical ideas, these gathered topics, so that we can think better about who Jesus is. I love this doctrine. I love it. It's it's probably my favorite doctrine to study. It is because of this doctrine that I cringe When I hear people use the word fellowship to mean Baptist potluck. (laughs) It's not a potluck room we have back there. It's a fellowship room where we fellowship. And then they don't don't use it to mean anything more. That's where the term ends. But here's the deal. Fellowship is, is not about a potluck. It's the outworking of our adoption into God's family. Okay, so so fellowship. This is the English word we use to translate the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is the here's the definition from a lexicon: a close association involving mutual interests and sharing, an association, communion, fellowship, a close relationship. Okay, that's one word that's packed with a lot of stuff, and then it goes on. It involves an attitude of goodwill that manifests an interest in that close relationship. It includes. Generosity and sharing, it is the sign of unity and brotherly love among Christian people. It's an interesting word because it can also be used in the Bible to discuss a special contribution or a significant sharing. We just saw in Romans 15.26 when we were going through that when, when Paul said... Uh, Macedonia and Achaia, these churches there, were pleased to make a contribution, a koinonia for the poor amongst the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, it's not just sharing in a potluck fellowship. Anyone can have a potluck. Right? That, that's not what koinonia is. In Romans 16:3 through 16, the list is not the potluck gang. It's Christians in a family who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ because Christ is the means for biblical koinonia. First Corinthians 10.16 asks this question. The cup of the blessing that we bless, meaning when we take the Lord's Supper, is it not sharing koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing koinonia? That's the word, sharing. The body of Christ. Koinonia depends on the blood and the body of Christ sacrificed on the cross. Paul closes his second letter to the Corinthians with this benediction, which I believe we're going to close our service with today. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, koinonia, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We can have fellowship with one another because we have fellowship with a triune God. We can have koinonia together because Jesus made it possible for us to have koinonia with the Father. Here's where it gets really fascinating. The Hebrew word for fellowship, when you read your Bible, you see fellowship show up a bunch, especially in the CSB. I didn't check every translation, but definitely in the CSB, is shalem, Okay, kind of. That's not a good translation because that word is actually two words. It's never just fellowship alone. It's actually either fellowship offering or peace offering. Okay, in the Old Testament, there was no true fellowship between God and people without an offering, a sacrifice. This particular shalem is one of those we read about in Leviticus a fellowship offering. Okay, you can read about that in Leviticus 3. This offering cost a person something, as they all did. A healthy, blemish-free animal. It was a cow, depending on your finances. It could be a sheep. There's all these instructions, and we see the, the peace offering or the fellowship offering run through the book. Now, here's what's interesting about this offering. Some offerings, they're total. They're complete. They get totally burned up. But this offering, part of the offering is given to God. Part of it is consumed up in the fire. Part of it is God's part. The other part was to be eaten by the person making the offering. This was a shared meal between God and the person making the offering or people making the offering. It was a shared event. It was a shared blessing between God and man because it was making peace between God and man so that there could be fellowship between God and man. Now, moving forward, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the offerings in Leviticus. We don't do this stuff anymore. We didn't pull an animal up here and sacrifice it this morning because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled all of those offerings, including the fellowship offering and the the peace offering. He did it. He did it so that we could have perfect fellowship with God. Jesus paid this price, and it was costly. Costly? I thought this was a free gift. It's free in a sense us this fellowship we can have it's free in that all the gold and all the silver and all the diamonds and all the oil in the world could not pay for it they couldn't it was bought by something more valuable and more precious than anything in the world it was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ the living god who gave that for us and there's no amount of money you could you could have to buy it in that sense it's free but it's not uncostly. It's incredibly costly. Even Jesus said, Count the cost before you follow me, because it will cost you. What will it cost us? I think you know. You got to leave the old world, the old community, the old stuff, the old self behind. That's all your old family of the devil, the children of wrath. It's going to cost you coming into this family. It's worth it. Jesus is going to pay it. But you need to understand there is a cost. Some of us are still holding on to the old life, aren't we? Some of us are still holding on to parts of the old world, the old self. If I'm talking to you, I think you probably know. There's that little thing. I asked God in the beginning of this to show us and to illuminate it in our lives. Jesus is probably telling you right now the little thing you're holding on to the little thing you can't trust God in, the little thing that you have to let go. It's costly to follow Jesus. If that's you, answer yes to the Holy Spirit. Take the right steps. Go that direction. Some of you have absolutely no peace and no fellowship with God. None at all. Now I'm going to say something you're not going to like, but I hope you are in agony about that. Because most people, like before I was a believer, didn't bother me at all. It's when you start to feel the agony of being far from God, when you start to be concerned about the fact that you are not at peace with God, that He is working on you, and He is stirring in you, and He is moving you from being a child of wrath, child of the devil, into this adoption process to move you to see Christ, to surrender to Him, to believe in Him, to be brought into His family if you're in the agony if you're feeling anxious about this, if you're concerned about your relationship with God and you don't think it's right, praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit's working on you. Come talk with us. We'll open up his book. We'll let the one you're in agony with tell you what it means to follow him and be a Christian. And I'm telling you right now, in our community, in the communities around, I've been hearing pastors talk about this like crazy. God is stirring in the souls of people. This weird twisting. I heard stories this week at a meeting we attended of baptisms all up and down the Wasatch Front, more than we've ever seen before. One church down in Orem had 111 baptisms in one day. Just a little back. Redemption Hill had like 70 baptisms this year, a church plant. We've had more than we've ever had before. Risen life, churches up north, churches down south. God is stirring in the lives of people, if he's stirring in your life, there's for a reason, come talk with us. You're not alone. God is doing something. He's bringing people into his family. He's bringing people into our family, if you're a Christian. He's bringing koinonia between him and people and koinonia between us and these new people. Come talk with us. Jesus' fulfillment of this fellowship offering means that we can have peace with God. We can have communion with God. We can experience that, but also we can experience it with the redeemed people of God. That was his plan, that we would be doing this together in meaningful community, brothers and sisters, family. If God saved you, he's using you as part of his community that he's creating for himself. God creates real community with his people. This morning, I simply want to challenge you to think about what's holding you back from experiencing real community. I mean, genuinely. If you're struggling with God's people for one reason or another, why? If you're str- I'll confess, there are times when I see other pastors or other churches are doing, I, even at the beginning of this, I talked about these people are doing that thing. I don't think that's the most helpful. If these things are keeping us from having community with brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to repent, myself included. We need to love one another. We need to take steps to foster the community that God has put us in by trusting Him and what He has said about this community. What's He telling you is your next step? To have faithful, biblical community with the bride of Christ. To know Him. To fellowship with Him. And then because of that, fellowship with His people. I believe you already know. I asked God at the beginning, show us. I believe He's speaking to us. I believe he's speaking to you. There's something there. What is it going to take for you to walk faithfully in that so that you, so that us, so that this church, just as a start, can have the kind of community we're reading about that Paul had in Romans 16? What's the next step? What's the next step? What is it going to take? Church, I think God is doing a radical and amazing work in redeeming people. And I am longing for and looking forward to the byproduct of that when he takes this people and creates this kind of radical community in which we all love and serve the Lord, and that is the common bond that causes us to love one another so much that it shows the world that we are followers followers of Christ. What's it going to take for us to get there? We're going to sing, and we're going to worship together, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Don't brush that question off as we respond in these ways. Ask the Lord, what must I do to have this community, and then do it. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that you would redeem us. i so undeserved. I'm so grateful that you are redeeming lots of people. I'm hearing stories of people buying Bibles and the people that work at Amazon are surprised by the sales of Bibles and because of that surprise, they got saved. I'm hearing stories of people getting baptized and then because of that, more people are getting baptized and the gospel is being shared, Lord, and even in our church, we've seen you rip the gospel right through one whole family, radically changing lives, transforming lives. God, may that be the case for all of our lost family members, that are physical family members, will be reborn, born again in you, adopted that we'd be sitting and worshiping with our physical family members who've now become our spiritual brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. God, help us to, to love one another in such a way that people cannot deny that we are your followers. Lord, speak to each and every one of us in terms that we can understand. Give us the encouragement and the motivation and the courage to take that step, whatever that might be, to share the gospel with the person we're afraid to talk to about it. Lord, invite someone to church. Or to read our Bible more and start a little Bible study with somebody or to to sing unashamedly and and worship and praise with brothers and sisters in this space or maybe to, to take the step from watching online to actually gathering with your people in person. God, I don't know. You know, and I'm asking, Lord, please, I'm begging that you would speak to me that I would do it, that you would speak to us as a church that we would do it, that we would be marked by your love as your people and no one could deny that we've been adopted into your family. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit RedeemingLifeUtah.org.